I, I think as we open the book of James, um, one of the thoughts I had was, I'd say most Christians probably would say that they're familiar with the book of James. If you would say that, go ahead and raise your hand. It's not a trick question. Just, yeah, a lot, a lot of us. Um, but, but I have a second thought, and that is that it's, it's possible that we are familiar with James, but potentially only the passages that are cherry-picked. You know, James is that book that gets used for very specific passages and reasons. But as I've been studying it, I have read it dozens of times, studied it, and taught through it twice. So now that I'm diving into chapter one, I have been amazed at how much I have not seen. And so again, it's a book that's familiar to us for reasons, but there's a lot of passages that do not get brought up. And we are going to make sure that we do just that. James is one of those books that I think also we are familiar with because you can read it really quickly. But it's like a New Testament book of Proverbs that it's so dense, it's hard to learn a lot from it unless you slow down. You have to slow down because it says so much and you can read in one minute all of this stuff, but you've got to slow down and extrapolate the principles that James is giving in in a dense form. And so as we unpack it, I think it's going to be easy to say, wow, I never thought about that before or I never saw that, Uh, very much like Proverbs. Today, we're just going to look at the first four verses, but before we do, I want to give you an overview of the book because when we study a book of the Bible, we want to ask some inductive Bible study questions, and so here's a couple of them I want to answer, and the first one is this, who wrote the book of James? Does anybody have a guess? You guys are just ahead today. You're on it, caffeinated and everything. Well, the writer of the book of James does identify himself in chapter 1, verse 1, and he says that his name is, of course, James. But James was a popular name in, um, in ancient times, and uh, particularly among the Jewish people, you may know this, but James is actually a derivative of an Old Testament name that we all know quite well, and that name is Jacob. Actually, this really truly is the book of Jacob. Scholars have been debating this for a long time. Many wish that they could change it, but because of tradition, it's almost impossible now to get this called James. So we all call, or Jacob, we all call it James. But there is also some scholarly debate over why it got called James in the first place, because it should have just been translated Jacob. Now, I'm no scholar, but as I read people or trusted voices, um, one of the reasons potentially that it's still called James is because there's a translation that we have that goes all the way back to 1611, authorized version called King James. And it is very possible. You know where I'm going. (laughs) This is not my speculation. It is pretty massive debate in, in scholarly arenas. So the more I read on this, the more I had to just close the books and say, all right, (laughs) I don't want to know, but there are five James at least mentioned in the New Testament. Two of them are Jesus' disciples. You might remember James, son of Zebedee, brother of John. We call him James the Greater. But there's another James that's a disciple of Jesus. We call him James, son of Alphaeus, or James the Lesser. And then, of course, there are others. But the James that wrote this particular book would be James, the half-brother of Jesus. And most scholars completely agree on that point. So a little bit about him. You may know Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55 tells us that Jesus had 
at least four half-brothers. They're all named there. And it says that he had sisters. So he has at least two because it's a plural term. Jesus had at least six half-brothers and sisters, and James was one of them. In John 7 and verse 5, it tells us that James, along with all of his other siblings, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is why there's confusion over Jesus's mission right there in James chapter, or John chapter 7. So it's kind of an interesting story that unfolds. James didn't stay an unbeliever. He did change his mind on Jesus, which is a good thing. He's mentioned many other times in Scripture in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. He's mentioned along with his other siblings that they were in the upper room awaiting the promise of the Father. In Acts chapter 15, it tells us that James was actually a prominent leader in the Jerusalem city. He was giving counsel. And in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says that he's a pillar in the church. Jude and Peter mention James. James is very important throughout the New Testament. A handful of historical documents refer to James as old camel knees. And this, of course, means that he's a man of prayer. Now, I didn't know what camel knees look like. I've seen camels before, but I've never been fixated on their kneecaps. (laughs) But I looked it up on Google, and I thought it was inappropriate to bring that to you today. So let's just say camel knees are very ugly and callous. And the idea here is that James prayed that much that he was always on his knees. And this is how the community knew him as a man of prayer. We do not have a record in the Bible of how this specific James died, but we do know that he was martyred because tradition tells us that outside of scripture, that somewhere around 62 AD, he was killed. The Pharisees had a problem with James. And so they forced this moment where they called upon him to renounce his faith. And of course he wouldn't. And so tradition tells us that they ran him off the top of the temple and they thought that he wasn't dead. And so people grabbed clubs and beat him to death um, right there in front, in front of the temple. This is what tradition tells us about the end of his life, that he followed and believed in Jesus, his half-brother, until the end. The second question is, who is the book of James written to? In verse 1, it also tells us that. It says, the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes, that's a reference to Jewish people, and dispersed abroad is a reference to those that have been scattered outside of Jerusalem and their well-known towns in ancient Palestine. And it's interesting to note that sometimes when people talk about the book of James, they say that those that were dispersed abroad were experiencing just physical persecution. And that's not really true. Uh, James was written somewhere around 45 to 50 AD, which makes it like the first New Testament book, most likely. There's a scholarly debate between Galatians being the first book or maybe James being the first book, but it seems pretty feasible that James actually was chronologically the first New Testament book that was written because of the counsel that he gives there in Acts chapter 15. But something that's interesting is that when people were experiencing persecution in that time, specifically Jews, they were under persecution and duress, verbal persecution and otherwise, because they were Jewish. So that was the first thing. But the second was that if you were a Jewish Christian, now your brothers and sisters and your family members don't accept you. And so some of them would have small businesses. And people, when they found out about you, wouldn't buy your products. And this caused them, if they were going to make a living, they had to go abroad. They had to be scattered so that they could actually feed their families. And so some people became sort of that mobile small business uh, so that they can make a living. And so when he says dispersed abroad, it means that he knew them and they knew him. 
and that many of them were throughout the Roman world living among other nations. So this would have been a well-traveled document and made it around the known world at that time. What is the primary theme of the book of James? We're talking about five chapters, 108 verses, and interestingly enough, almost half of the verses that are found in the book of James carry an imperative, or you could call that a command. So James is always saying, do this. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very much like the book of Mark. Do this, do this, do this. So it can be overwhelming because there's a lot of to-dos in the book of James. The great reformer Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He wished that it wasn't in the Bible because he had such a radical conversion in receiving the grace of God. Um, he came from being a Catholic monk, of course, started the Lutheran church. And so he despised the book of James because it sort of confronted his newfound doctrine of the grace of God. But we know that it doesn't have a conflict with God's grace and salvation. It's just talking about what a believer's life looks like if they are, in fact, a follower of Jesus. If you ask me what's the primary theme of this book, there's a lot of things that he talks about. I mean, he talks about trials, temptations, faith, doubt, wisdom, favoritism, sinful speech. We're going to get to it all. It's going to be amazing. Going to feel so good about where you are and where you need to be. But I think if you just lay it out and look at it, I think he's contrasting sincere faith and superficial faith. And so I'm calling it authentic faith because I think that's what I find when I read James. He's saying this is what an authentic believer in Jesus should do and should look like. And with that said, I'm just going to read the first four verses of the book of James, chapter 1. It says this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy. Some translations say count it all joy. My brethren, when you face trials of many kinds or encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, that means whole, lacking in nothing. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. We could keep going, but we've got many, many weeks ahead. A couple points that I want to make out of these, uh, really just the three verses. And the first point is this, everyone will face trials. Isn't that what James says? He says, when you encounter trials of many kinds, not if, it's an assumption, when. But I love this passage because it gives a framework for how it is that we deal with trials or difficulty or trouble in our life. He tells us three things. He tells us what to do, he tells us what we need to know, and he tells us what to expect. He was preaching to preachers. I love that. That's, that's what he gives. He gives a framework, assuming that we're going to have many trials of many kinds throughout our life. And he really is echoing the book of John when Jesus actually says in John 16 and verse 33, that in this world, you will have trials or trouble or tribulation. But then he gives a promise, but take heart, what? I have overcome the world. You in this life will have trials and trouble. So James says the exact same thing. When he uses the word trial, it's a well-known and well-used Greek word. It's actually an umbrella term that covers all of the things that we would face in life. So when he says that we're going to encounter these things, he certainly is referring to life issues. Life issues are those unpredictable things that every person will face to one degree or another. We're talking about sickness. We're talking about accidents. We're talking about disappointments or losses or relational fallout and betrayal. 
every person will face all of those things to some degree. I think he's also referring to, and the scriptures later on even show us that he's referring to temptations, temptations that we have because we have the flesh, but we also have an enemy that wants to do harm to us. And he's referring to persecution. When people deem Christians something that is contrary to the way that they want to live, whether it's because of what they believe or how they behave, there is persecution. It starts verbal, and of course, it it can become physical. He's referring to those kinds of trials as well. And what I love about James, and particularly James chapter 1, is he gives a theology for suffering instead of cheap answers for our pain. I love that about James. And not everyone today, not every church, not every pastor, not every person has a theology for suffering, but we should because the Bible does. The Bible has a theology for suffering. What's the purpose of suffering? What's the point of suffering? How do we suffer? Why do we suffer? And it's a shame and unfortunate that today there's far too much teaching that directly or indirectly says the exact opposite of what James is trying to prepare us for. The reason that James would say what he is is because he wants to prepare the people of God to embrace and accept the inevitable in their life. And when we do, when we accept, trials will happen, difficulties will come, sickness will be present, relational fallout and betrayal is going to happen. I don't want it to happen for you, but if you embrace it, then you can be prepared for it. But if we spend our energy fighting the fact that these things we don't want and we don't think they're supposed to happen because we think that God in being good means that he's gonna shield us from every bad and difficult thing, then friends, we've got another thing coming. And it's unfortunate that that is a lot of teaching today. It's a shame, isn't it? Western thinking, and sometimes people will call that the American gospel, and I don't say it that way to put down um, our country, but we tend to be more interested in comfort than character, and that's a problem. The idea that God only wants us happy, wealthy, healthy. What about enduring, patient, and holy? These things ought to be more important than all of the rest. And when it is, we have a robust, strong faith, not something fickle that doesn't last. This is what we need as the people of God. We need to make it until the end and glorify Jesus the whole way through. And there's no way that happens unless we pick up what James is trying to say to us. If we believe that God's work in our lives is to get us out of difficulty or we somehow interpret his blessing is that we never have to face difficulty or face difficulty to a strength of which people do all over the world, then what happens when trouble comes, we will not value what God is doing in the midst of it. God is always at work, even in the midst of trials. That's what James is telling us. God's at work. We may not always see that or feel it, but he is. But depression and discouragement and disillusionment, it can set in. And many people walk away from God because they have a wrong idea of God. My theory is this. I think when we talk about the great deconstruction movement, I think a lot of people walk away from a version of God that they've been told, not God himself. God is good. God is ever-present. God is wonderful and magnificent. And he is God. Let's just say it that way. God is God. And if God is real, and if the Bible is true, and Jesus is who he says he is, then nobody in their right mind is going to walk away from him. But the problem can be is that some of us have been told that he is uh, in a way that he is not. 
And when that doesn't happen or that doesn't come to bear, we have quite a problem, don't we? When the God that we've been told doesn't show up in the way that we've been told that he will or promised he will or guaranteed that he will, we have a problem. And this is why James helps us uh, so much. He rejects a theology absent of suffering. Instead, he tells us, here is how you face trials. Here is how you face trials. Stop trying to get out of them. Embrace it. Here's how. The first piece of advice and guidance he gives us is face trials with a joyful attitude. (laughs) Seems counterintuitive. (laughs) Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. He's talking about an attitude. And this is the way that we face the difficulties in our life. Yes, it's counterintuitive because when a trial comes, we're sad and not glad. (laughs) We might be mad and not glad. And maybe we're discouraged. Perhaps you've had a terrible loss. That's difficult to say, count that all joy. How do you do that? What What is he talking about? Friends, he's getting at something deeper than just a reaction. He's not talking about rejoice because of the trial. He's saying you can rejoice in the trial. There's a big difference between the two. We know that our outlook determines our outcome and our attitude will determine our actions. But let me tell you this, a joyful attitude doesn't start in a trial, but it can be sustained in one. I want to say that again. A joyful attitude does not start in a trial. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about it can be sustained in one. It's not like we develop a joyful attitude because a trial came. He's he's saying we can have joy because joy is the work of the spirit in the believer's life. We can have joy because we know Jesus. We can have joy because we know things that the world doesn't know. We've been brought into the promises of God. We have a relationship with Jesus. So this is our joy. It's not about the situation. It's that no matter what happens to us, we know there's something greater that is always true. And James wants the people that he's writing to, and of course us as modern day disciples, to hear this truth. Have a joyful attitude. Yes, persecution is unjust. Loss is painful. Sickness is terrible. And discouragement is damaging. But we have to evaluate our pain in light of God's promises. And unless we do that, we will just live in the pain and it will drain us and it will drown us. That's what happens. That's a life without Jesus. And it is unfortunate that too many of us have Jesus, but we allow these things to drown us and to drain us, and it should not be. That's what James is talking about. We need to remember that God loves us even if everyone else leaves us. You need to remember that you may not own a home, but in heaven, the Bible says you're going to have a nice one. Amen. That's Your body might be sick, but I want to tell you today that you've got a new one en route. Come on, if you're older and hurting, go ahead and say amen. You should have said something. (laughs) I got camel knees and an ape from prayer, Pastor Ben. I'll tell you what. (laughs) These are the truths that we hold dear. You may have pain and problems and enemies and turmoil, but you have God, and that means more, and it always should. The psalmist writes this about trouble. Psalm 46, verse one, he said, God is our refuge and strength. Look at this, a very present help in trouble. 
You ask the question today, Pastor Ben, how can I have a joyful attitude? Here's how. God is with you. Everybody say it. God is with you. If you say this to yourself, you'd say me, God is with me. This can help you lift that frown. This can help you see something that is greater and it's going on in your heart right now. It's going on right now. How can I have a joyful attitude? God is with me. We have to value the spiritual over the physical and the future over the present, the eternal over the temporal. It's a mindset. It's a mentality. It's the only way that we can actually obtain a joyful attitude, as James is pointing out. But then he goes on to tell us that our joyful attitude is connected to what we know. And that's the second point. How do you face trials? You face trials with a proper understanding. In verse 3, he continues, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Trials will absolutely test our faith. And if we walk them out with the Lord, the Bible says that we will get endurance and we need endurance. The apostle Paul actually said the same thing in Romans 5. Here's what he said. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. And here's why. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Here's Paul saying the same thing. We can rejoice because problems will give us endurance, which will shape our character. In other words, it's not about anything else other than who we are becoming. That is more important than what happens to us in our life. It's who we are becoming. That's the central focus of what's happening here in these passages. A lack of endurance will call us, cause us to fall away. It'll cause us to give up. Isn't that the contrast here? We need endurance so that we don't give up. Have you ever noticed the passage in Galatians chapter six? I think it's verse two. Paul says to the Galatian church, do not grow weary in what? Doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. Look at the word there. Don't grow weary. Weariness isn't something that just comes upon you suddenly. You actually walk out weariness and over a period of time, you grow into weariness just like we can grow into the Lord. And he's telling us it's a choice by commanding us not to go that way. Don't grow weary. If you notice that you're moving in that direction, turn around and by the power of the spirit, according to God's word, you can. It's a choice. It's a choice. Trials are inevitable, but growth is not promised unless we learn how to surrender ourselves to Jesus. Growth is not inevitable, but trials are. Where we go from there has a lot to do with our choice, has a lot to do with what we choose. But knowing what God is producing in and through us can cause us to have that joyful attitude. Another way of saying it is this, in order for us to be strong Christians, <laughs> we might need some trials. Go ahead and smile. Smile in the trial. Go for it. Just try it out. I was reading this week, I actually heard it from another guy um, somewhere along the way. And uh, I, I love it when people make comments because we're living in a day where you can actually go to source material. And having written a few books, when you publish material, one of the things that you develop is an anxiety <laughs> about citing source material, right? And we, of course, live in an age of misinformation, so people can say, that's not right, this is right, and they studied for five minutes, which is a shame. 
But I have developed through publishing works uh, an anxiety about uh, source material. But I love, I love it. When I hear people talk about something, I go, I wonder if that's true. <laughs> I'm that guy. Any, is anybody like, like me? I got a lot of you in this church. I know I do. I was drawn to you because you're like me in so many ways. All right. <laughs> you validated my existence and experience. Um, yeah, I know it's true. I say things to some of you t- at times and you resonate and it's that little nuance thing. of like, I so agree with that. And it's like I had nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> I need to keep going. But I was, I, was li- I was listening to a guy and he mentioned, um, he mentioned this thing called Biosphere 2. Maybe you've heard of it. But here's what it is. In University of Arizona, they inherited and they now own and cultivate this large structure called Biosphere 2. And here's what it is. It's a man-made ecosystem that is sealed off from the natural ecosystem. So it's like, it looks like a metal glass structure, kind of like Amazon building down in Seattle, but it's three acres big. It's huge. And it's completely, totally sealed off from the natural elements outside. The, the goal here is that they want to study climate change and all kinds of other things. And so within this structure, they actually have ocean water, wetlands, rainforest, grassland, and desert so that they can perform all of these uh, studies. It's real fascinating. You can knock yourself out and, and look this stuff up on University of Arizona website. Uh, but here's something that the scientists recognized the trees inside their ecosystem grew rapidly, so much faster than natural trees outside of that in just the natural environment. They grew so much faster. But at some point, they started to fall over. So the scientists did this deep dive as to why was this the case. And you know what they determined? That it was a lack of wind. That was the one thing they did not have in this environment, like not even artificially. They they didn't pr- produce a natural wind. And I didn't know this, but wind causes trees to strengthen and it gives this thing, it produces stress wood. Uh, as the wind blows against the trees, they become more dense and they stabilize all the way down to the base. And it causes trees to what? Endure for many, many years. So these trees in an ecosystem that was man-made, they could not endure. So they just fell over because the roots didn't go down deep. But when the wind comes in our environment, it causes their roots to go down deep and it causes the trees to get dense and thick. And that's why some trees can last hundreds and hundreds of, of years. And I just wanted to say, I thought about this. And I thought this is very much like our life. We actually need adverse winds at times. You don't want me to say that today, but I'm gonna say it to you. Now, I'm not suggesting that God's sending all of that wind, but what I am saying is God's using all of it. God uses all that wind to do what? Give us endurance, cause us to be strong so that we can endure and make it all the way to the end and glorify Jesus. Friend, you need endurance or you cannot make it. And this is something that God is producing in you through trials. Now, I want you to have the happy, clappy, amen. I want you to come to church and somebody says, how are you doing? You're just, bless God, brother, sister, I'm amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm fantastic and I'm not faking it. I know some Christians fake it, but not me. I'm not faking it. I am amazing. And if they're married, their spouse is like, they ain't that amazing. They ain't, I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's all in their head. That's what that is. <laughs> That's right. They slept on the couch last night is what they did. <laughs> Avoided their trial. A- anyways, so... 
So you, you have to, we have to have a proper understanding, and that understanding is that God gives us endurance. I always thought it was funny. Um, my wife's a hiker, and uh, so kind of, kind of bragging on her and sh- shedding light on this. I'm, I'm just not. And we, we started out hiking a little bit together, like on holidays. I thought, yeah, let's, I can kill it. I can kill it. Um, I got, I'm getting killed is what's happening. Like you're dying. Like, like there's, you know, I do hike guys. I do. I, I live a mile from Starbucks and it's quite a hike. It is, it is. And, and at the end of the road, there's a gift, you know, and that's my favorite, my favorite ride at Disneyland is Starbucks. Cause it's a long line, but I always get what I want. It's powerful. And it lasts longer than the rest of the rides. This is what age does to you. <laughs> Either that or the 11:30 service is going to be a little better than this. But Bridget hikes, and I used to go with her a little bit. Now she's got a couple buddies like Ming Ray and others, and, and I thank God for that, you know, for you and in, in her life. But we started with the four-mile hikes and the five five miles. That was that was I didn't know that was my limit of endurance. I didn't realize that until one day I don't remember when it was into our career of hiking, but she. She's, I said, how long is this one hike? And she said, I don't remember what you said. I honestly can't, you might, but it was like, hey, six or seven, six or whatever miles, okay? So in my head, I, when you hear six, I, re- I, go, I go down <laughs> because I don't want to increase that at all in my life. So we get on this trail and the elevation is higher than I want and we, we're going and I'm feeling, yeah, oh man, this is, and I'm like that guy who's like, I see people stop halfway and I'm like, I'm not going to be like that person, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then the higher up you go, the more attractive what they're doing <laughs> looks like wisdom. <laughs> now I'm not judging them anymore. I'm taking counsel from their activity. So if that's you, I apologize for my judginess. But I was just doing a four or five mile hike. But we went on this one and I got that, that, uh, that watch, you know, and it tells you how far you've gone. So you can't lie to me. And we're already at 3.5 and we're not at the top. And I'm thinking, my Lord, where, what are we doing? Where are we going? Are we in Australia? What are we? And my camel knees are telling me that this is over. Like, it's over, buddy, you know. <laughs> you are not what you once were. And you weren't even that once you were. And not even... It's all a pipe dream. And so, but you know what I noticed when I, would, uh, when I used to hike with Bridget? Because she'll go 10 miles. She'll go so far and she just trucks, you know. And I don't even enjoy my experience anymore. Some of you are like, oh, it's the outdoors and it's so lovely and it's so, and you just, it's, to me, it's like you go up, you get a pick and then you just kind of like, <laughs> you just go down, like, I don't know. Like, but it's amazing how your attitude Look at this. Your attitude changes. And it's horrible to be on a trip with somebody that has a bad attitude. I hate going on a mission trip and somebody's got a bad attitude because they've never slept in a sleeping bag or something or had to wait an extra three hours for a meal. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, they, like they definitely don't have a joyful attitude, but it's amazing when you haven't developed the endurance, your attitude starts to suck. Can I say that? So he's saying, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith, the hard things in your life will cause God to produce endurance inside of you and you need endurance so that you can make it to the end. 
Now, I know hiking is maybe not a good parallel, but your attitude, if you don't have the endurance and you're not strengthening that, your attitude is terrible. It's amazing how that works. But here's the third thing he tells us, which brings it to its conclusion. Face trials with a hopeful expectation. In verse four, he says, and let endurance, when you have endurance, let it have its perfect result so that you may be perfect. That word is mature and complete. That word is also whole. That you may be mature and whole. Who you are supposed to be lacking in nothing. So here James gives the actual goal and the outcome. Sometimes this word is translated to be a full age so that you can reach full age maturity. Many passages say this exact thing, that God's goal for his kids is maturity and maturity is defined by being like Jesus. That's the goal. If you wanna say, what's God doing in my life? That's what God is doing in your life. You say, Ben, does every trial cause that to happen. And here's what I want to say. Not every trial in our life has a micro purpose. Like some bad things happen to us and they're just part of life. They're horrible. There's not like, I can really derive a lot of purpose out of this horrible thing that's happened to me. If you've been in a car accident, you know what I'm saying? Like there's just not a lot of good out of that. A lot of time wasted, money wasted, getting your car fixed, dealing with insurance companies. They almost make you feel like you're a criminal. I mean, come on. It's not like a micro purpose, like this happened so that this would happen. I mean, no, no, no. A lot of things in life don't have like a real micro purpose, but here's what the Bible promises. If you step back, God has a plan and he will use everything in our life as to facilitate the macro purpose, which is to make us mature. But that doesn't happen automatically. It only happens if you take what you're going through and you give it to Jesus. That's the only way that it happens. You have to, I have to surrender my heart to Jesus or I'm just gonna grit my way through life and everyone else will suffer as a result of it. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about how God has a greater plan. Now, I've heard people say, creatives will say, God's an artist. <laughs> I don't know if the way I talk, if that's offensive, but <laughs> God, God's an artist, you know, <laughs> he's an and uh, I think when they, whenever, I don't always resonate with that, but when they, because he fashioned man out of the dirt, he's like, men, all right. So he took dirt <laughs> and he fashioned us. And I think, so he's the first creative. I've heard people teach this anyways, but I don't always resonate with what they're saying because I feel like the way that they're talking about God's artistry is like he takes a soft bristle brush and he starts to paint in the colors of our life. It's, it, sounds, it sounds so funny to me. Like, really? That doesn't feel like what life and discipleship is like to me. I think God's more like a sculptor with a chisel. <laughs> and that too is an artist, friend. It's not like just, oh, let's just put a little bit here. No, I think he's like, whack. <laughs> so I wanted to show you something. I want to show you a picture. Okay. There it is. How many of you know what that is? That's marble. That's called Georgia marble. That's tons of marble. It's at a quarry, okay? I mean, that's pretty cool, but I'm not going to visit, right? That's, it's, I mean, it's cool looking, but I, I mean, does anybody like want to take a vacation there? No, it's, it's, just a, it's just a lot, a big block of marble. But let me show you this next picture. Does anybody know what that is? Okay, that's uh, the Lincoln Memorial. 
And I have visited here, but what's amazing is what that's made out of is 170 tons of Georgia marble. So the first picture is just a big block. The second is something magnificent that people go, I mean, they fly miles and miles and miles to visit this and sit there. And you sit there and you're, part of it's not even about Lincoln. You're just going, how did somebody do this? Well, here's how they did it. 12 years of etching away with master craftsmanship and tool, the right tools, the right person, the right skill set. That's, that's what it took. They, they didn't just take a hammer and start bashing the marble. They took the chisel and, and they, they started tapping. And here, here's my point. I think we need to have this kind of vision for our life. Life is like a hammer and it's coming down on everyone. But what God wants to do is put his chisel, and I think that's what our trials can be when we give our trials to Jesus. It's like putting a chisel into God's hand and he puts, he puts the hit exactly where it needs to go. And he takes away pieces that shouldn't be there so that we can look more like we're supposed to instead of like a block. That's what we start out as. We start out like blockheads. <laughs> like, you, st- you know, you're saved and you love Jesus, and that's all great, but it doesn't touch anybody. We just walk around like big blocks. And if that's what we stay, we hurt a lot of other people. We just, there's nothing that they see that's compelling, right? But here's what James talks about. How do you get to maturity? You get to maturity through the trials. The trials give you endurance, and endurance causes you to make it all the way. That's what he's talking about. So we have to give our trials like we give a chisel into the hands of the Lord, and then he starts to go to work. There's a cooperation in order for our character to be forged. That's what surrender is, and it's what it's all about. Paul says it this way, watch, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things. I wanna put the word trials in there. And we know that God causes all things, trials to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined them to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is always doing, always. That's his plan. That's his purpose in everything. God, I don't know what lesson you're teaching me. It might not be a big lesson. It's that he wants us to be like Jesus. God, I don't know why this is in my life. It doesn't have to have a micro purpose, but step back, give it to him and he'll use it. He causes all things to work together for his good purposes. But we got to put the, that into his hands, friends. I, I've watched a lot of Christians, and I've been one for 24 plus years. And at this point, I realize when I don't surrender to Jesus, nothing happens. I just stay the way that I am, forgiven of my sin and on my way to heaven. And that to me is not enough. I, I, I'm thankful for that. I want to be with Jesus, but I want to be like Jesus too. And I want other, other people to look at my life and your life and feel like there's a compelling, credible witness of Christ in the midst of it that we can show and shine Christ too, not just talk about him and not be changed by him. I was, uh, interestingly enough, I went to a church and I preached. Uh, I left you one weekend. I did. You, you don't remember, but I did. And the Lord gave me a word for this church that I went to preach at. And it was that they would be like a chisel in the hands of the Lord, that, that, that God would use them in discipleship. And so I bought them this, uh, and I never gave it to them. So a prophetic word never fully came to pass. I just still, I don't want to let go of my gift. 
But the Lord gave me a word, and so I bought this chisel set. And I, I've got a whole lot of chisels in here. You, if you want to see it after the service, you can. But, but I bought these nice chisels, and I'm, I gave them a prophetic word, and I'm, I'm going to give them to them as kind of like a statement. Maybe they'll keep it in their office or something like that. But that, this, that God will use you as a chisel to help disciple people. The artist that God is is, is, more like, is more like this. He's sculpting our life. That's why if we have a fickle faith, we won't make it. If we just want the brush stroke of, of God adding more color to our life. Friends, that isn't even what life is like. But the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he predestined to be conformed to be in the likeness of his son. This is what it takes. You, you, you give your trials to the Lord and this is like what the trial is and he just, he just starts, he starts to work. It's amazing. I think I need to give this back to them. I need to give it to them. What do you think? Keep it. No. <laughs> I, I want to close by sharing this thought with you. I, I, um, when I was studying the book of James, I asked this question, and I had never thought about this before. I'd never heard it before. I'd never thought about it. Maybe you've thought about it, so that's fine. Um, but I was asking the question, you know, James wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I, I started saying, what, or asking, what did he know that caused him to write this? Like, here he is encouraging other believers that are scattered and going through difficulty. What did James know? Because you just don't give cheap advice. Like, that's not what this is. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's weighty, and you can feel that. Like, you can't just, like, in a chipper way, like, hey, you can have a smile in the trial. I mean, I purposely said that because you can, and I wanted to bring up, like, maybe a Christian quip for a reason, because it's true, even though sometimes it can feel cheap. So I was like, what did James know? What did he experience? What did he see? And so as I'm looking at every verse in the Bible— that references this man named James, I came across this verse that I have read before, but I never thought of it this way. And this is where in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's explaining everyone who saw Jesus after his resurrection. And here's what he says in verse six. He says, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of them are alive today, but some have fallen asleep. Now listen to this. Then he appeared to James and then the rest of the apostles. Doesn't seem like it means a whole lot. But I started thinking about that. It doesn't say that in the Gospels. Paul mentions it. He had a revelation. He knew that Jesus specifically came back and he revealed himself to his brother. Now, James is a guy who saw Jesus grow up. He saw him as a baby. He saw him grow up. He saw his, his life lived, whether he was perfect or not. James actually saw Jesus' life. And then James didn't believe in Jesus, but he watched him go through incredible suffering. He watched him go through incredible suffering up to the point where he was crucified. And I personally think that James thought it was all over when Jesus died because he didn't believe anyways. So here it is, all of these things that he said and People believed as they followed him. James is thinking, this game is over. Jesus was just my brother, and that's that. And now he's dead. So let's move on with life. Go back to being a fisherman. Go back to being a tax collector. Go back to being a mason. Go back to being a carpenter. That's James' mentality in my, in my mind. That's my opinion. But then Jesus, after he is resurrected, he appears to James, and he shows him who he really is. And I bet you, this is what I think, 
I think James had a flood of revelation when Jesus showed up. When Jesus showed up, I bet you James had a conversion experience like no other. It isn't described, but it's just mentioned. He appeared to James, and James was radically converted. And now a guy that didn't even believe in him is all of a sudden one of the greater apostles or one of the greatest ones mentioned throughout the New Testament. Now he's all over the place. He's a pillar in the church. He's an elder in the Jerusalem council. He's someone that literally wouldn't refuse unto death. He had endurance all the way to the end. And he saw it in Jesus. He watched Jesus go through all this and he saw that death can produce life. He watched it in his brother and he lived it himself. He paid for these words with his life. He did. James gave his life in the same way that he's encouraging us, that give yourself to Jesus until the end. No matter what trials or tribulation come, Jesus is worth it and Jesus is with you. And you can have a smile in the trial. You can actually have joy. You can count it all joy, not because of what's happening, but because of what you know that's greater. And friends, we've got to latch a hold of that in these days like no other time. We have to lay hold of truth of Jesus in these times or else we're going to have a fickle, superficial faith that will not last. It will not last. We need these adverse winds to be useful in our life for God's purpose. And if we give them to him, that's exactly what Jesus will do. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for every person that names the name of Jesus. I don't just want to make it. I want to make it in the way that's beautiful, that looks like Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's God's plan. Would you stand to your feet as I pray? Amen. Don't ask for these chisels after the service. Just don't, don't do it. I'm not passing them out. I'm not. But maybe you could remember that. Would you mind just for a moment, would you bow your heads just as we pray? Today, as we consider all that we go through, I don't minimize anyone's pain in this room, nor can I sit here and say I understand it. That's actually not my purpose today. I, I just am reading his word. That's, and I, I am subject to it the same way you are. I, I'm not the master of this word. I'm not, I haven't mastered it. I'm seeking to live it just, just like you. So we share it one another as brothers and sisters and say, Lord, may it be in our life, right? But it could be that you're here today and I'm glad that we are gathered together. But I, here's what I don't want. I don't want anybody to walk out of this room and not even know where to start. So we heard this about trials and trouble and all of that. Jesus is with me. But the question I have is, are you with him? Have you, have you surrendered to Jesus your whole heart, your whole life? Because that's where it begins. You, you, you can't have the shaping experience of what God intends to do in your life and in my life. It doesn't happen unless we belong to Jesus. You have to belong to Jesus. This means our whole life is in his hands. And we have to say that. We have to commit to that. We have to give over ourselves to Jesus. And so as we bow our heads and we pray, I just want to ask you that question. Do you belong to Jesus? Have you given your whole life to him? Unreservedly. Not, not, not that you're perfect. Lord, I present my performance to you. No, you present yourself to him. And then he takes you from where you are and makes you like him. You have to present yourself. If you haven't done that this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Especially in the new year, I'm thinking about there's no better decision than to say, I give my heart to Jesus. I want forgiveness for when I sin, relationship with him. I want to walk with him. I want my life to be different. And the only way that's going to happen is to be his. 
So as we're here today, if you would acknowledge that you need to give your heart to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand boldly and confidently that that's you. I, I don't know that's true of me. I see your hand right there. Yeah, is there anybody else? Yes, yes. Is there anybody else? Ben, I need to give my heart to Jesus today. I see you right there too. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? There's about four or five of us right here in the room. I just want to, yeah. I belong to Jesus. Yeah. Okay, there's several of us. This is your commitment to him, not to me. Not, not. But in this room, God can change everything. How many lives I've seen in this room be changed forever, healed, baptized in water, filled with the Holy Spirit, came in one way, came out another. In this room, God's doing that with you. And if you're praying that prayer today, here's what I want to say to you. If you raise your hand, would you come up front? We have prayer partners available and pastors, and we want to pray with you to fully give your heart to Jesus. I know that's an extra step, but it's worth it. It's an extra step. Raising your hand was acknowledging faith, but coming up front is confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. We want to walk you through the prayer of salvation. I just want it to be as meaningful as possible. And so we'll be up here. Please come forward after the service. And for the rest of us, I just want to encourage you, surrender your trials to Jesus. Let's do that together as we pray. Father, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus that we belong to you and we are walking with you. And as the psalmist says, you are our ever-present help in times of trouble. And so no matter what we face in this life, we know that you're with us in the storm. And we thank you that you are. And I pray that you would strengthen us by the word of God. Holy Spirit, would you fill us and baptize us and prepare us for Jesus? That we wouldn't compromise. If we need to repent, we would repent. If we need to change, we would change. But we can't do it without your help. So we ask for you to help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cry out to you today, have our trial and use it to shape us in whatever way that you see fit. Our life belongs to you and to you alone. We love you and we thank you. I pray that you would bless your church as we step into a new year. I pray this entire year would be all yours, just like our life is all yours. We love you, we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Pastor Ben's mission is to equip the church to impact the world. If you want to get connected, check the show notes and visit bendixon.org. From there, you can learn about Pastor Ben's other podcasts, the books he has written, Ignite Global Ministries, and the online Immersion Discipleship School. Thank you.